Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this eventful and important week in NBA basketball. I have two guests for you to break it all down. Ed Mazinette of the Sports Fan Journal and SB Nation comes on. We actually talked less than an hour after Adam Silver's decision was announced to ban Donald Sterling for life and to fine him $2.5 million and encourage the sale of the team. So we talked and then also had Adam Lauritsen, who writes Fast Break, which is the Golden State Warriors fan blog on the San Jose Mercury News site, to talk about the Warriors and to talk about this incredible series that's going on with all of the insanity surrounding it. So it was great to have them on, but first is Ed Mazinette. The other thing that I need to mention at the outset is that this is about eight minutes of a conversation that ran about 25. There was a technical mistake where it looked like it was recording and it ended up not recording. So it has the first part of our conversation. I did my absolute best to summarize the second half of our conversation. Ed brought up a lot of excellent points. So to try to have it complete, but the conversation itself was timely enough and it was he brought up so many intelligent points that even though it is a much abridged version of what we actually got into, I thought it was a very important thing to include in this podcast. So that goes first, and it runs about eight minutes. I hope you enjoy it. I had a lot of fun talking to him. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Danny. God, glad to be here as always. So we're recording this less than, I think, less than an hour after Commissioner Adam Silver's press conference finished where he both banned Clippers owner Donald Sterling for life and also find him two and a half million dollars, which is a drop in the bucket for him, but still symbolic. What is your overall opinion on where this has all gone from the original ruling? Well, I do think it's interesting that if you look at the what the bylaws say as far as what 
Commissioner Adam Silver can do. Uh, he took it to the fullest extent of the law. Um, he gave the lifetime ban and he fined him two, two and a half million dollars, which is to say, I have a feeling if they could somehow find a way to do more, then they would have done more. If you could have gave him two lifetime bans, they would have gave him two. If they could have fined him $25 million, they would have fined him 25. So uh, they went to the full extent of the law as far as what the NBA bylaw said that Adam Silver can do. And now we just have to see what will happen when the owners convene to vote with this ruling. And we can't get that ruling until Commissioner Sil Commissioner Adam Silver or one of the owners draws up the accusation that Donna Sterling has not acted in good faith towards the league's benefit. And once that's written up, then they'll have uh, up to 10 days to make a decision on the vote um, and go from there. Yeah, I think that you bring up a good point with the maximum possible. I think that that's the statement that he needed to make. And also, if you watch Kevin Johnson's statement, I think that was what the players wanted was, you know, they knew that the commissioner doesn't have unlimited authority to do what he wants. And that's the way the NBA system works. And I mean, we've both experienced, I'm sure that the NBA keeps its constitution and bylaws on pretty tight lock and key. The only person outside of that world that I knew, it seems like has access to it in any form is Lester Munson of ESPN, and he wrote that really good piece yesterday. And so what's strong about Silver's statement is that he did all that he could do. And now the onus in a lot of ways is on ownership to see what they're going to do. And if you want to call it a precedent, you can call it that. But they've got a big decision ahead of them. And while Woj is already reporting that he thinks that they're, they're, some people think they have the votes. This is a very big and I would say unprecedented thing. Absolutely. And, you know, I think just from some of the immediate conversations I've had immediately following this decision, I had to make sure and let people know, like, it is not a foregone conclusion that 23 of the 30 owners will vote yes to get Donald T. Sterling affectionately the hell up on out of there um, as owner of the Los Angeles Clippers. Um, I think hearing some of the things that Mark Cuban said the day before, it looked like he just got out of a CrossFit workout when they interviewed him the other day. Um, and he came out and said that, look, man, we are basically considering prosecuting somebody who said something in private and talking about divesting property from them. And he's, he's not necessarily down for that. And I don't blame him for taking that stance. Now he did just come out on Twitter and he, he came out in 100% support of the decision, but supporting this decision and then voting against taking ownership from someone who of someone who said this in private and taking a, this is a huge thing by taking the Clippers from uh, from Donald Sterling is a different precedent that would be set. Now, with that being said, I don't necessarily think that means Cuba will vote yes or vote no. I don't know how that's going to break down. But I think that is part of the concern of Cuban and maybe other owners, because, look, most people don't get wealthy by following the rules. Uh, and sometimes that means that they cut corners. Sometimes that means that they are very exploitative of uh, other people and other people's situations. And that could be race-based. It could be a sexist. It could be anything, and especially to the things that he called out the other day. So a lot of these owners probably do have some skeletons in their closet. And if the precedent is set that these types of things can be drugged up via private uh, recordings and then held against them, then I think this is just called self-preservation by Mark Cuban and maybe by other owners. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And yeah, this is obviously it's reprehensible words and all of that. And I think everybody agree. I think there's a pretty wide agreement on that. But it is words that were said in private. And what strikes me as somebody who lived in L.A. and I was uh, I'll go into it a little bit more. I was in the UCLA public policy department 
when the rulings came out in 05 and I believe it was 07, you know, I was I was in public policy. I was around the housing and urban development people. And that was a big deal. And, you know, that was that was really out there. And I think that what's sad about it is that since those were settled and this was the argument that Silver used and as an as another lawyer, I can understand this, though, it does again get into the grounds of an interesting precedent is that his interpretation, though, obviously he wasn't the commissioner then was that, well, there were no verdicts that were against him. And so the NBA couldn't do anything. Well, there are no verdicts against Silver for the, for Sterling for this. And you get into an interesting situation where he may have actually been hurt by the fact that this isn't going to be a litigated issue, that it will only be litigated in the court of public opinion. And so this precedent that if you settle your lawsuits and you do your you do that with no admission of wrongdoing, then you're all right. But if you say something stupid and never be prosecuted, then that puts you on shaky ground and I can understand why owners would not want to set that precedent, as stupid as the things are that he said. Exactly. And and look, man, these owners are not us. They don't think like us. They don't act like us. Um, in many ways, they are the ultimate in protecting themselves more than anybody else. We haven't seen anything like this since the days of Mark Schott in the early 1990s. And we saw what happened effectively with Mark Schott is that she was froze out and she did get pressured, but ultimately she sold the team because she couldn't interact with the one thing that she loved. And that makes it very tough. And if you're Donald Sterling, the man who's 81 years old, uh, I do think it's mildly fascinating. What could possibly happen with Sterling is that I, I could foresee it a, a way, shape or form that, Donald Sterling's team does not get voted out the league, but he has no way of communicating or being interacting with his league. And so he kind of just becomes this figurehead and he creates an organization that can make all of the decisions without him being involved at all whatsoever. And that would almost be fun to play out to see because man, like nobody would want to play there still. Nobody would want to coach there and the environment of the organization would wither and almost die. And I think by the league trying to act swift, they're trying to say, I'm not going to call the Clippers a crown jewel of the NBA, but they, they're they a dusty, beat-up jewel that's still got a lot of potential uh, left there. Um, and it's already interesting to see that Magic Johnson and the Guggenheim group are already swooping in trying to make a, make a claim for the team. Um, and I know that I'm diverting the point a little bit, so I apologize. But there's so many things that's fascinating about this. And a lot of this... For the first time in Donald Sterling's life, he really does not have a ton of control because he let two women in his life basically flush it down the drain for him, which is probably one of the more hilarious aspects of this entire story. Yeah, it really is. And I'll go into two of the points that you brought up. One of them is the idea of Sterling not having control. And then the question on that part is then how much can he claim that he's a part of it? Obviously, people know that he's disgraced and all that. But if he's still the owner then these things like the draft parties that he was doing, you know, if he's not doing that on site, if he's doing that in his house and he's still the owner of the team, maybe he can still do some of that. And then the other one, and this will kind of put you on the spot a little bit, but I've been thinking about the last couple of days and started writing these. But the other really interesting thing that this illuminates is the danger of a draft process that does not involve any drafty choice. And so you're, you're potentially having this system where, yeah, maybe free agents are going to go there, but players can be drafted and traded without their consent. So how do you deal with that, and how do you deal with a league that it has more empowered players in terms of dealing with a, let's say, scummy owner that players don't want to play for, but in some effect are forced to? Yeah, I, I think 
you know, that's going to be the scary thing. Sadly enough, that's where the conversation cuts off. While we talked for 25 minutes, the second half of the conversation didn't record. We didn't know it at the time, so it's very frustrating. We're going to try to revisit it at another point, but I did want to summarize it since I wanted to put this in because it's so topical. The other major points that we hit were interesting speculation in terms of how they're going to want to distance the current Clippers from whatever is next, and that could be the possibility of an expedited name change because the Clipper name has really nothing to do with Los Angeles, but it has something to do with Sterling and San Diego and when he moved the team. So if it's possible to get that done more quickly than usual, I think that could certainly happen. Also, there we talked about the possibility, Ed brought it up, of maybe them ending up somewhere else and whether the league could or would put in protections to make sure that the team stays in LA. It wasn't something I had thought about, but it was definitely an interesting idea. And then the other part of it, and we talked about this a little bit on the broadcast, is the idea that this wasn't the worst thing that Sterling has done. And we talked a little while about the excellent, excellent, excellent Bomani Jones commentary that went out before the ver- the verdict, the decision actually happened. And the idea is that in terms of the effect on people's lives, what Donald Sterling allegedly, but it seems like he confirmed it, said is a relatively small thing and while it's a terrible small thing it is a small thing and discrimination against people and refusing to rent to people and all a lot of the other things that are in his biography along with him being a legitimately terrible owner which i think is an important part of this as well when you're talking about the league's financial incentive to get him out it's not like they're replacing a very popular very successful owner they're replacing who was the guy who was probably not only one of the worst people to be a sports owner long before this story, but also one of the worst owners in all of professional sports. The stat has gone out there that the Clippers had the lowest winning percentage in all of the NBA, and not all of the NBA, all of North American professional sports during his illustrious tenure as their owner. So you have that lingering in the background, and I think it's very interesting to think about the concept of the team value for a team like the Clippers because while Sterling up until the last couple of years with the Chris Paul trade has gone for more of a profit center thing by, you know, league revenues and everything like that, there is amazing growth potential, and Ed talked about this, in having a competently run second team in LA and that could potentially run into what happens if the Lakers stay not at their superlative level for a couple of years, that whether it be the joke that I've made for years that the car flags will change from Lakers to Clippers is remains to be seen, but there certainly is a groundswell of support that can happen, and the team has even gained more notoriety in Los Angeles by virtue of this, and if you take away the stigma, I think there's a group of people that would be ready to embrace this, and LA is a, a very good basketball city. It's, you know, it's not New York, it's not a lot of other places, but it's still wonderful, and there's so many people there, so there's growth potential there, if you want to call it that. And it's a fascinating situation. I think we're all learning about it. The only other note that I wanted to put in there was after our conversation, but before this is going out, the league actually put out the NBA Constitution and Bylaws. So they are publicly available there on the NBA's website, which for people like Ed and I is a wonderful thing. So now instead of having to speculate or having to just blindly guess at what the rules of that part of the game are, we know. And that goes along with Adam Silver's transparency, and it's a really wonderful thing. I'm very happy with it. So, again, thanks to Ed Maisonette for coming on. You can 
read him at Sports Fan Journal. He's the he's editor there. You can also read him in Slam Magazine. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow. His na- his handle is at EdTheSportsFan. He's a great follow. And the other thing that we want to talk about at some point when we got cut off on this one is the Oklahoma City Thunder. Those are his team. And obviously we'll see how that's going to work out. Next up is Adam Lauritsen. He is one of my favorite writers on the Golden State Warriors. He writes the Fast Break blog on for the San Jose Mercury News. And we wanted to go kind of in-depth on the combination of the Warriors and this fascinating Warriors-Clippers series. And it was fun because we went into a lot of different directions. We started out with Game 5, which had just happened, and Game 6, which is coming on Thursday. And then also Mark Jackson's future with the team, how, how it should go. And a lot of the like, mostly unusual issues that the Warriors are dealing with because of the combination of their success and their frequent and recent lack of success and so changing the reputation but not changing it all the way and a lot of those things that make this warrior situation so particularly interesting hope you enjoy it it runs about 37 minutes a long conversation but absolutely loved having him on been trying to have him on for a while now so here's Adam Wurtzen and I well thank you so much for coming on it's great to be here thanks for having me so we'll start with the more topical thing, which is the Warriors' playoff run. And has there been anything that has really surprised you so far through five games? Well, all the drama, obviously, around Sterling, but putting aside the stuff that's happening off the basketball court, I've been impressed by how well the Warriors' small lineup has been able to deal with the big men on the Clippers. Coming into the series, I expected Griffin and Jordan uh, just to completely dominate them. Uh, and there have been times where that's been the case, but I think uh, Draymond Green deserves a ton of credit for really stepping up and making the small ball lineup of the Warriors viable, both on offense and defense. He's been great defensively on Griffin, but he's also really opened up a lot of nice things for them in the pick and roll on offense. Yeah, and the interesting part about it, if you want to go into positional definitions, which is thing that I find interesting, is that Draymond, to me, was kind of a, a matchup for before this, but he's done a relatively good job on Blake Griffin, and he's made it so that downside risk of him playing a legit, legitimate four seems much less now than it did before, and that really helps the Warriors tactically moving forward. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it used to be kind of a topic that you'd throw out like, oh, yeah, would Draymond be a spot starter for a team somewhere? Could you see some matchups that work? Uh, Because you always thought that there would be a size disadvantage or that there would be some difficulty with an offensively skilled four. But the way that he's defended Griffin, how he defended Randolph when they were playing Memphis earlier in the season – He's really shown a versatility that I think is going to put him in a discussion for being an unconventional but very effective power forward. And also something that I've harped on a lot during the year is that I feel that offensively he plays a lot better with Steph Curry because he's not a guy who's particularly great at creating for others, but he's better at using and also creating off of other opportunities. And so while the Warriors ideally would have somebody coming off the bench who could do that when they don't playing a more dependent guy in that sense with like Draymond with Steph Curry makes a lot of sense yeah absolutely and I don't know you know where you came out on this debate back at the beginning of the season but you know remember way back when there was the talk of you know should Clay Thompson or should Barnes be the starter for the Warriors uh, and one of the calculations in that was well you know, who's going to be the best self-starter does somebody have an advantage of playing with someone like Curry someone like Iguodala who can really find you and help your offense 
And I think Barnes suffered from not playing a lot of minutes with those starters, with the really good ball movement guys. He has a game that he needs a little help right now to get things going. Draymond, different player, obviously, but I think your point is exactly right, that if you put him out there with people who can find him cutting to the basket and doing the smart things that he does on the court, he's really going to be a more versatile player. And that's also why people give David Lee credit as being a good ball ball movement player, which he is at certain moments. But I think that uh, Draymond at the four, Bogut at the five combination would be interesting offensively because teams respect Draymond, I think, in some ways a little bit more than they should from the three-point line. But the passing that he has is incredibly underrated, and that works very well with what Bogut does well. Yeah, I think that's right. And for that lineup, Iguodala really becomes the the X factor because you're obviously going to need some more points if you're going to play a green Bogut lineup up front. But if with the ball movement and you know maybe open three-point looks, you start getting Iguodala a lot of good opportunities, he could be a, an 18-point-a-night scorer for you. And if you can get maybe a combined 20, 22 points out of Bogut and Green, suddenly you have a nice viable lineup there. So it's really interesting for the Warriors. The playoffs for the last two years have been kind of thought experiments for this team. You know, what if you take away a variable that we previously thought was essential? What does the team end up looking like? You know, and these are kind of message board and blog hypotheticals come to real life here with the stakes as high as they can possibly be. So it's fun to to watch them experiment. Yeah, and I was somebody who advocated before the season that I wanted to see some minutes with David Lee at center, and mostly for offensive reasons, just because I thought it would create some problems defensively in those situations when Bogut sat. And while obviously there are plenty of flaws with that, it has been interesting, at least to me, that it hasn't been as devastating defensively as some people thought it would be. No, and that's really, uh, we just watched game five last night. Game five seemed to me the first game where Jordan was really, really punishing Lee on a consistent basis. But before that, when they had gone small, Lee had covered pretty well. He had done a nice job. So, yeah, I mean, I think that he played a lot of time in New York at center. He's obviously comfortable in that sort of small ball center position. And it's intriguing to see what the Warriors can do there with him. And it's a little bit concerning when your second all-star is best, probably maybe not best served, but has a useful role as your backup center. But at some point, you have to deal with the fact that he's probably best served and the team is best served by staggering his minutes with Curry. And if you want to protect his ego by having him as a starter who then leaves early and then comes back, that's I'm all right with that. But it concerns me that it seems like that has been a non-negotiable so far, despite how well Draymond has played at various moments. Yeah, that's the question. Do you think that any coach, put aside Mark Jackson, do you think there are coaches in the NBA right now that would send David Lee to the bench? Uh, you, you can you can draw sort of the Popovich Ginobili analogy where he sends a guy to the bench who's one of his stars and says you're still going to be a huge part of what I do, but I think this balances out the team a little bit better. But I don't know. Other than that, can you think of other precedents like that where somebody would get sent to the bench who is been that big of a part of a team? I think it would have to come from the front office. And that's the challenging thing when you're dealing with apportioning credit and apportioning blame for an NBA team is that unless you're really in it, it's hard to know where the directive's coming from. Because obviously when Joe Lacob's name is on your checks, what he says goes to a point because he has the authority to fire you. So if Jackson or any other coach is given the free reign to do it, I think it's certainly possible, especially when you have somebody who is coming into it midstream, which to a point Jackson did, but more accurately, 
another coach would because they're coming at it with a set of fresh eyes. But if Lacob says that's what he wants, then that goes. And I would love to have a coach that would have the autonomy to be able to do that. But from a functional perspective, I think even when you look from a GM perspective and people were criticizing what Dell Demps did with the Pelicans, that wasn't his fault. That was his owner, Tom Benson, saying, we need to get better. We need to get better now. So at the same point, it's all on Joe Lacob. If Joe Lacob says, I'm fine, you know, do whatever you want, and then the coach still is scared of putting putting David Lee on the bench, then that's obviously a problem. Yeah, no, I think you have to look at the numbers. You have to look at video. You have to look at your gut instinct and figure out which five basketball players are going to be the best on the court. And when you look at those things with this current Warriors team, I think that there's a very interesting debate to be had about David Lee's place. He's a great player. You know, I get labeled occasionally as being a Lee hater. I respect some parts of his game tremendously, and I think there's some weaknesses in his game. He's like any other NBA player like that. And with Lee, more than other people, it's all about accentuating his strengths and hiding his weaknesses. And that requires some crafty coaching. That requires some balancing rotations, lineups. Yeah, and I've been labeled that a lot, and a lot of us have, actually, anybody who's been (laughs) critical at some point. But the thing that makes David Lee an interesting test in a lot of ways is that he has very clear strengths and very clear weaknesses. And the thing that you need, I think, when you're dealing with a player like that is a clarity of vision. And one of the problems that a lot of teams do, and I think it could come from ownership, it could come from the GM, we don't really know, it could come from the coaches, the idea that your five best players need to be your starters. And if you want to go into the case of Mark Jackson, the idea of kind of a more of a bench mob where you pull all the starters at the same time. While that works for some teams, you need a specific set of circumstances, i.e. a point guard that can run an offense better than Ken Bazemore, (laughs) as much as I love him. And one of the challenges with Jackson is that whether or not it's up to him, there has been no real challenging of, let's call it conventional wisdom, to even see if these alternative lineups work other than in cases of injury and foul trouble. Yeah, now that you raise it, we should get into the question of Jackson and his assistants. Jackson's pretty much alone on an island now with two assistants who are known to be his close friends who don't have very prestigious coaching records of their own. So there's really a question, and this is no knock on Jackson, uh, sort of how much brain power there is on the bench compared to an average team. You know, you look at a team that has a deep, roster of assistant coaches who have coached for you know 10 15 years who are specialists in defense or offense the Warriors just don't have that right now given everything that's gone down Uh, and also the rumors swirling about Jackson being prickly to criticism having uh, contentious relationships with his assistants uh, who are no longer there based upon Jackson's supposed lack of uh, attention to detail there are a lot of questions that that I think are rightfully being asked about Jackson's rotations, the decisions he's making with his lineups, because this is a roster that has a lot of firepower, but exactly like you said, you can't just line up the five best players like it's a fantasy team or something and put them out there. There needs to be some nuance, and I don't think we've seen that with a lot of the Warriors' rotations this year. And nuance is definitely a good word for it. The thing that I I like to phrase it as is if you want to call it intellectual curiosity, that's fine. Or even the more traditional term is conservatism. I think that what Jackson does in these general circumstances is that he goes with his instinct. And while that can work in certain circumstances, you need to try everything. I, I think of the quotes that are attributed to Popovich in terms of using the regular season as a laboratory. Yeah. And what was so crazy about 2013 
is that we were seeing a lineup that part of the reason it worked was because George Carl didn't know how to adjust. And yeah, and, and lots of different people get credit and blame for that. But there are all these lineups, including the one that we're seeing for the most part, that despite Bogut having injuries during the year, we never saw them together or we saw it so rarely that we couldn't get a true stand on it. So we go, oh, that sounds like it could be good, but we had no real idea. And that's terrifying when you're going against quality coaching and you're facing the same team for up to seven consecutive games. Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right. The the statistics on the green Bogut 4-5 combination with the rest of the starters, I think that that lineup played under 90 minutes, maybe somewhere around 80 minutes for the entire season. And even when you sort of factor in the injuries, that's an incredibly small amount of time for a lineup that seems like it would make sense. Let's put our three best front court defenders on the court at the same time with our two best backcourt scorers and see what they do. You know, that, that's not some wild and crazy concept. You would have hoped that it would have been something that you would experiment with, like you said, but we didn't see a lot of it. And unfortunately, with what happened to Bogut, we're not going to see it in the playoffs probably. Uh, but yeah, it's a missed opportunity. You know, there were plenty of games where the Warriors struggled to focus, struggled to get something going against lesser teams that very easily could have been used as an opportunity to expand what the team could do and test what their strengths are. And along those lines, one that has bothered me for a while is even testing out the idea of doing some different things in terms of offensive pace, like running after makes just at certain moments, either to screw with other teams or because you can. And one of the striking things about this team is that it kind of feels like at various moments is that they do what they do. And while they get into these moments of isolation ball, that there isn't this sense of, hey, let's just try this. And if it doesn't work, then so be it. You see that. And, and when you do those experiments, there's a very quick, if you want to call it a trigger, to go back. And I think we saw that with DeAndre Jordan last in Game 5. Yeah, I think that that's right. You know, Draymond picked up two really early fouls, and as soon as that happened, it was like the Warriors were knocked back You know, two games earlier, three games earlier, that the experiment was over, Draymond went to the bench, it was back to the status quo, back to bad habits, and they really struggled and had a tough first half again. I don't know whether there's an answer uh, with the current coach we have. I mean, I've gone publicly with criticism on Mark Jackson, so there's no surprise that I think that he has serious shortcomings as a coach. But now in the the heart of a seven-game series facing elimination, I don't know if there's going to be any magic solution or radical change on the coaching staff. They're either going to win with what he's doing or they're not. So we'll wait and see. That's a great point. And the challenging thing for me with Jackson, I've had this discussion before, but I think this is a good forum for it. And I think you're a good person to talk about it with is that what's hard about coaching in the NBA is that you have a very small amount of people who are clear positives. And we can draw that line where we want, but it's definitely Popovich. I would say Spolster's in there. I was going to say Vogel before now, who knows what's going (laughs) on with that team. And then there are a few clear negatives. I would say, despite their success, Randy Whitman is one of those. There are a few others. And then there are a whole lot that are in the middle. And they're, you know, a game or two if you want to try to quantify it in one direction or the other. And what's challenging with the Warriors situation is that I'm critical of Mark too, but I don't think he's in that clear negative category. And I think that he could improve with time. I think that if he kind of gets away from, if you, if you want to call it, I don't know what you want to call it, but if it's paranoia or just a lot of confidence in his way and just understanding that that's not the role of an NBA coach right now. But the challenging thing for the Warriors is even if they replace him, 
it's hard to get somebody in that first group. It's very difficult. I would say it's unlikely, especially in some ways if you're going with an unproven coach, but either way, to get somebody in that group, and if you're going to get somebody that's a similar neutral, then you're running the risk of these players, though I think this is a little bit overrated, these players that seem to genuinely like Mark Jackson just being angry with it. And at a certain point, the NBA is a players league, and if Steph Curry is unhappy with the replacement and that makes him less likely to stay, even though he has three years and no options, that should be something to consider in some way. Yeah, I I think that that's a a really clear presentation of the challenge. And I agree that the player anger is probably a little bit overrated. There are ways that you can involve people like Curry in the process and make them feel like they have a a voice at the table. The real challenge, I think, for Joe, looking at at what he's going to do, is if he decides that Jackson isn't his coach, is there a way for him to extricate himself from this that doesn't scare off all of the tier one coaches or the really highly thought of coaches from a situation where there's a meddling owner. You know, I think that the the way that the relationship has become strained, at least as it's perceived by the media between Jackson and Lakeup creates the danger that somebody who can write their own meal ticket, who's in demand around the NBA is going to say, I don't want to go somewhere where an owner is going to be second guessing me constantly and sort of breathing down my neck on every decision. So it's a real fine line between exerting ownership's desires, keeping Jackson sort of on a straight line that they think is appropriate, but then overreaching and creating an environment where you can't get top talent. The ownership here has done a really good job changing the reputation of the Warriors, and Jackson deserves credit for that too, making a place that players want to come. And I'd hate to see them risk that uh, in a coaching situation. Uh, At the same time, I'd like to see someone who – I think is a a bit more detail-oriented and can help the Warriors put their pieces together and elevate to the next level. And the other part of that challenge, just dealing with the actual chess pieces on the board, is that Mark Jackson is incredibly popular in the media. And while I wish that especially the broader media had less of a sense in terms of shaping perception of basketball people, because obviously they can do that with general sports fans, that's fine. But having Jeff Van Gundy in particular, who obviously has a close relationship with Mark Jackson – Going during his games, which a potential coach might be watching, and unless they're watching in the Bay Area or in L.A., they're probably, even if they're watching in L.A., they're probably watching the national feed, having somebody who has a lot of national respect and somebody who, incidentally, I would love to be the next coach of the Warriors, talk about how wonderful this guy is and how it would be such a shame if he lost his job. That plays in a hard way as well, not only with potential coaches, but also with potential players, because while the Warriors are building a brand and they certainly are much better than they were before, when you're dealing with, let's say, max level players, it doesn't really matter too much if you're number three on their list or you're number 10. But if you're thinking, oh, these owners might be, you know, they might be a problem or, you know, maybe we're not going to be able to get the coaches or something like that. That might push a team out of your top two. And so that's a concern as well. And obviously coaching is the same logic. So you never want to do anything that takes you out of the conversation. And there is a downside risk that a misstep handling Mark Jackson could do that temporarily or a little bit longer than temporarily. Yeah, I think you want to do no harm here. Uh, If you have something lined up that you think is clearly superior and you can do that quietly, then yeah, you know, maybe you take a risk and you go with that. But You'd hate to see them just throw Jackson to the curb without any sort of plan in place for for what's coming next. Uh, Even with all my criticism of Jackson, I don't think that that's a good idea. I think that that is too great a risk given uh, what he's accomplished with this team. 
And that lack of foresight was actually something that I criticized pretty heavily when they fired Keith Smart and then hired Mark Jackson, because there was this quote Joe Lacob said right after they fired Keith Smart. It was a completely justifiable quote was, you know, we're looking for somebody with experience. We're looking for somebody who did that. And that wasn't it was one fair criticism of what Keith Smart had done. You know, I, I don't think he was a great coach. I think that his experience in Sacramento bears that out a little bit. But when you use that as your rationale for, for firing your coach, which is completely fair, then you shouldn't turn around a week and a half later, especially if a guy was your target, and hire somebody who has zero coaching experience. Because all you're doing is you're, you're giving yourself a good rationale, and then you're just praying that nobody paid attention to it. Because anybody who did went, well, that's weird. And the, and the other factor with that with Mark Jackson is there are people who are basketball people, and actually Steve Kerr incidentally could be one of these, who's been in the game in enough different forms that even though they don't have coaching experience, you go, okay, that's fine. Yeah. But Jackson wasn't this superstar coaching prospect. He's more of a superstar personality who also had a chance as a coach. And I said he had high upside at the time, and that was true. But it was such an unknown because he had so little experience that – there was this disconnect between what they said a couple weeks before and then, and while you can do that if it works out, when that's your next, your first big hire, and then now it doesn't work out, then you're going, okay, well, what are they looking for, and are they going to make the right person come? Because as you said, a lot of it is about, not about how they justify it to people like us about why they fired them, but making sure that the next coach delivers because the expectations for the next coach of the Golden State Warriors, whenever it is, whether it be in 2014 or whether it be in 2016, are going to be sky high with the talent involved on this team and the success they've had recently. Yeah, I mean, the, the history of Lakeup's decisions, it's an interesting course. And like Jackson is an inexperienced coach, and like you have inexperienced players, you also have inexperienced owners. I think he made some mistakes early that if he had to do over again, he'd do things differently. I think bringing in uh, Bob Myers, Jerry West, other people who are credible basketball voices around him to serve as uh, sounding boards for what's going on and other people to you know, give opinions is a really positive thing. So you know, I'm sure that they're thinking through these decisions. It's going to be a really tough one, particularly if the Warriors make it to the second round. So I honestly, I, I can't predict what's going to happen. Yeah, you bring up an excellent point with bringing in other sounding boards and bringing in people that are clearly intelligent. I think that having Weston Myers in the conversation is a really nice benefit for this team. And the creativity in some ways and the ability to, I don't want to call it the scrappy, but pick guys up that were, let's say, underappreciated and then use them and have a have them be a nice part of it has been a wonderful thing. I mean, they've gotten contribution, if you want to say, Draymond Green, Jared Jack, Carl Landry. You can go through the list and then those successes allow you to clear the space to get a guy like Andre Iguodala, which was also a very intelligent, proactive signing. But I want to move into the idea you said, and I agree with you, that this is a very hard situation to predict. So moving prediction aside, if this were entirely your decision, who would you, assuming you want to bring somebody in, who would you be looking at as the next coach of the Golden State Warriors? <laughs> you know, it depends a lot on what the tampering rules are in our hypothetical league that we're creating here. It goes without saying that if for some reason the Spurs flame out uh, or Popovich decides that he doesn't want to coach the Spurs anymore, you know, he, he obviously would be at the top of your list. He's got a place up in Napa. 
Uh, he spent time in the Bay Area. He has some connections here. So, yeah, we all can dream. A slightly more realistic choice, you know, Thibodeau, if he's on the outs with Chicago, who knows what happens there. I have some concerns about what he would do with his team offensively, but he's a grinder. He's employed assistants who are very smart and capable. He's kind of become one of these almost coaching farms like Popovich was spinning people off. Uh, you know, there's a next generation of assistants who I think are going to be head coaches who have worked under him. So if he's looking for a new home, sign me up. I'm all on board with that. Beyond that, you know, it gets more difficult. I think that you, we put ourselves in the range where you're dealing with people who aren't a clear upgrade over Jackson, that they may be an upgrade in one sense, but a downgrade in another. And that's where it becomes difficult. I probably wouldn't replace Jackson for Kerr, honestly. I think that that's sort of a sideways move. I would want to replace Jackson with somebody who has a proven track record of being a coach. But it's hard to find someone who has a track record who's good, who's not just a retread, somebody who's bombed out and not really been successful. I think that you probably want to look at the up-and-coming assistants, people who've maybe spent 10 years on a bench, eight years on a bench, have a long future of coaching ahead of them, but a lot of experience in their past, another way around the NBA. Uh, and there's a list of those guys. You look under the best coaches in the NBA, and there are typically one or two lead assistants who probably fit that bill. Yeah, the lead assistant route would be a very competent, smart route. The only other guy that I would add in there as a clear upgrade to me is Stan Van Gundy. I think that what he could do with this team, because if you built it in an interesting way, you could do something similar to what he had in Orlando with Andrew Bogut in the Dwight Howard role and with a better offensive player in Stephen Curry than anybody that he dealt with. And I feel that he could do a good job with this group. And also the huge benefit of this Warriors team in terms of a coach is that all of the dominant personalities on this team are positives. There is, yeah. there are no wild cards. There are no Dwight Howards there. And while those guys don't, sometimes their negatives get overplayed. All of the major guys on this team are major team players. And that's part of the thing that makes it hard to evaluate Mark Jackson is that it doesn't take good coaching to get Draymond Green to play hard. It doesn't take good coaching to have Stephen Curry play hard. It doesn't take good coaching to have Andrew Bogut play hard. So that might be an enticing factor for a guy like that because you're not going to have that drama there if he thinks that that drama is coming from somewhere else in the organization. Obviously, that's a flaw. But he's another guy. I think that he is of the, let's call it realistic chances. I think that he's the one that would be the best fit and the only absolute upgrade of a guy that I know is going to be on the market. Yeah, I'd agree with that, and I don't know whether he's out there looking for another job or not, uh, but your Orlando analogy, I think, is a really good one because uh, with Curry and Thompson and even Iguodala and Barnes, uh, this team would break all records for three-point shooting with Van Gundy as coach. They'd have an inside-outside game. They'd probably need to find a player who could be a consistent penetrator, although Thompson's doing a better job at that. Uh, but Bogut would be great in the middle as kind of the rebounding, shot blocking, you know, ball distributing center. And I think your your point about the personalities is absolutely right as well, because Van Gundy, the risk is he wears guys down. He grates on them. You know, he's just such a grinder that the team tunes him out. But the Warriors are incredibly lucky with the, the high quality character guys they have on this team. Everybody's on board. They're focused. Like you said, you know, they're they're an easy to motivate team. They soak up sort of this coaching. So I'd be intrigued with that. I'd be fine replacing Jackson for Van Gundy. 
So moving more onto the side of the players, the Warriors have a limited amount of flexibility going into the offseason. Are there any moves, whether that be guys leaving the team or guys to bring in that you think are overwhelming positives that are within the realm of reasonableness? You have to figure out what you're going to do with Lee. So the the rumor last offseason that I heard from a fairly credible source was that the Warriors were willing to put Lee on the table if it was a clear upgrade for the team, if they were getting a player back who they thought was a superstar-level player. And I think you probably, given another year of Lee and the emergence of Draymond, have to look at whether you lower that standard a little bit for whether you want to shift him out somewhere else. Because if you can get back a high-quality player for David Lee that either has a better contract structure or maybe is a more all-around player with both defense and offense, that's one area of the roster that I think could could stand to be upgraded. Uh, the other area, you know, I don't think that the, the backup point guard uh, starts and stops that Myers has had this year have succeeded. Obviously, you know, the, the off-season signings didn't work out in that front. Crawford didn't work out. Blake didn't work out. So they're going to need to find someone else to back up Curry. Uh, and that's probably going to take some money to find. Spates, I've been driven crazy by him all year, but he has moments where he does things that you, you think, well, maybe this guy actually isn't just a complete waste of a roster spot and waste of money. So I actually think Spates will continue to have a role on this team. Hopefully not a huge one, but he's serviceable. So, you know, I think that you really consider, are we going to do anything with, with Lee? Do we make a blockbuster there? And if you don't do that, you're just trying to round out the bench, find a point guard, find an athletic big probably. Uh, you'll get Azili back at center, which will help next year. So, you know, it, it's going to be interesting. I think that Myers doesn't have a lot to work with, but he'll definitely have some options out there. And like you said, he's been really crafty and savvy in the moves that he's made. He's been aggressive. I'll be curious to see what he can do. Yeah, I'm going to be curious too. And there are two things that have really changed in some ways with David Lee. One of them is that is, it hasn't been talked about enough, in my opinion. Granted, I'm a collective bargaining agreement nerd, but <laughs> the idea that the Warriors drastically changed their financial structure when they signed Andre Iguodala. And what they did is that they they have now three key guys in Iguodala, Bogut, and Curry that all expire and become unrestricted free agents at the same time. And so you're dealing with that. So what happens is the incentive structure for moving David Lee for, let's say, a move that was more in terms of salary flexibility, the rumor of David Lee for Andrea Bargnani at one time was more in that line. It wasn't – you're not upgrading by – the move because Andre Bargnani is terrible at basketball. You're right. upgrading by what you can do with that space. And what changed with that is that now, unless they're making a sequence of moves or involving one of those three, any move with David Lee does not create salary cap flexibility. So it totally changes one of the avenues that would be a justifiable rationale for David Lee. But the big point with him, which is an open question, is we have no idea, at least you and I, I mean, I hope Bob Myers does, of what his value is, because that totally shifts things. You know, I was talking with Amin Al-Hassan of ESPN last week, and he was saying that he thought that David Lee would be considered an asset by Minnesota in terms of, wow, this would be a lofty dream, but a Kevin Love trade. But whether you see him as an asset or a negative, not only can that depend by team and depend by GM, but that's a huge question mark, because if he is seen as an asset with his combination of his skill and his salary, then maybe you're going to get do something interesting, especially if you could combine him with a guy, let's say, like Harrison Barnes, who is another guy whose value varies immensely over the course of the league. So the really hard counterfactual with it is to say, okay, well, 
if you can f- find a team that, let's say, overvalues him, that's wonderful. And if you can do that, then you can do that. But we have no clear idea because it's also been such a long time since he was a free agent to say, oh, well, this team was interested in him then. It was years and years ago now at this point. And so there should be teams that are interested in him. And I think that he makes sense certain places. But you're really going to need the dominoes to line up because one of the big rationales for doing a David Lee trade is off the table now, unless you're talking about preventing them from going into the luxury tax, which raises other concerns. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I I think that you look at the scenarios in which somebody's going to trade you a power forward for David Lee and something else, because presumably you'd trade Lee to get some sort of help at the four. Um, Or maybe if you're really gutsy in your Myers, you trade him to get really strong bench players. You know, I mean, that's something that for the good of the team, you know, if you can get a viable sort of consistent backup big and maybe a quality uh, backup point guard out of it, you, you should look at that and decide whether that could be good for the long-term health of the team just in terms of rounding out the roster. But, yeah, you know, other than Minnesota, maybe who's coerced because Love's going to leave anyway, it's hard to imagine somebody trading a high-quality four for David Lee and whatever parts you want to strap to it. That just doesn't seem like it, it's going to be super plausible. But who knows? You know, I never thought Andres Biedrich's uh, contract was going to be traded, and Myers pulled that out of the hat last year. So anything is possible in the world of uh, the NBA and uh, people making both basketball and money decisions. So we're recording this on Wednesday. Game five just happened. Game six is coming up. Unfortunately, this is going to go out before game six. So I figure a good way to let you go is to see what you think is going to happen in game six. And if there is a game seven, what you think would happen then? I think Warriors lose in game six. Uh, <laughs> as much as I'd love to see this team advance and get another round of basketball, I think that Doc is going to win the adjustment battle. I think that the Warriors had their best play, which was to go small and that Rivers has now sort of found ways to deal with that. He's back to frustrating Curry. I expect six to be a hard-fought game. Curry, I think, will play much better than he did in game five, but I think the Clippers are ultimately going to pull it out. How about I think you? you're what's right. Your, what's your pick? Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right on. I, I originally was predicting Warriors and six, I mean, not Warriors, Clippers and six, and then I went down to Clippers and five after the Bogut injury. But the logic is, and I think – there have been various people that have said this and I think they're right. The challenge with this is that the Warriors just don't have as much talent. And in general, in the NBA, unless you're the Indiana Pacers, your team having less talent and not only that, but having different competitive advantages, because the hard thing about facing the Clippers is that Chris Paul is a very good defender and you don't get those benefits of Curry making other people better as much when you're facing a guy like Chris Paul as when you're facing somebody else. So it feels to me like game one was in some ways more the aberration that, you know, crazy things happened and it, and it worked out for the Warriors and it was wonderful and all that. But the status quo in the series is that the Clippers are just a better team than the Warriors. And in a seven game series, that generally works itself out. And the Warriors, as you said, the adjustment game is the is a way that it can go in the advantage of the less talented team. But I don't see that, at least generally, as being an advantage for the Warriors. And there are certainly many, many ways that I could see this going seven. And I would say that the Warriors would have greater than a one in three chance of winning a game seven should it go there just because the talent margin isn't ridiculous. It's, it's close, but, you know, the home team has an advantage that 
they're going to the more likely scenario is that the more talented team wins because as wonderful as that Oracle crowd is and we both experienced it in person I don't think that the best the most likely scenario is that they can overcome the talent gap especially with the advantages that they specifically that the Clippers put on the table yeah I think that that's exactly right and you talked about one is an aberration game and I agree completely four is an aberration game too I mean the Sterling stuff wrote it's hard to to describe that as anything else other than an aberration game, even apart from the adjustments that the Warriors made and having that be kind of a, a change of pace game for how they were going about it. But I, I think that your game seven points really interesting because I, I would probably even put the odds higher than one in three if the Warriors managed to stretch this to seven, because I think the Warriors really do have quite a few gamers on their, their roster that Curry is going to be, I think, a clutch performer in a game seven. I think that somebody like Green is going to go out there and just leave everything on the court. So if the Warriors get in that environment, it's not like this Clippers team has a huge history of winning. You know, This isn't the San Antonio Spurs who know how to close out a series. If the Clippers get backed up against the wall and it's one game for everything, I like the Warriors' chances. So if they can somehow find a way to get through six, game seven would be a very, very interesting contest. One last thing I thought of while you're while you're raising those good points that I've been grappling with is trying to place Stephen Curry in the conversation of the elite players. And so the, the way that I'm thinking is the best way to phrase it is throwing the CBA out there, but still considering salaries and all that kind of stuff and excluding what the Warriors bring to the table. Generally speaking, how many guys are there in the league that you would trade Steph Curry for straight up? Under 10. Probably at least five, though. So I'd say somewhere in the, the seven to eight range. That sounds exactly right. And he also has the benefit of the rookie class that just came in being absolutely wretched. So yeah. you don't get that. You don't get that benefit of, oh, I get seven years of this guy as opposed to three for Steph, which is which is definitely something to consider. That's why somebody like Anthony Davis would be above him on my list. Also, Anthony Davis is a monster. But Steph has worked himself into a very interesting place on those lists because he's a wonderful player now. But given what he does, he could very well still have a little bit of ways to get to his ceiling. And that makes him a fascinating player. And also, to me, that's a major consideration in terms of who coaches this team long term is how much more he can improve and totally transform a team. Yeah, and I think that you look at where Curry was 18 months ago with all of his injuries. He probably, we would have said that there were 30 players at least, you know, maybe more than that that we would have traded him for because the injuries were such a question mark. But now that thankfully he's had a long stretch of healthy games, uh, you really look at, okay, could this guy play like this for the next decade? And it's conceivable he could. He could have a Nash-like career where he stays in shape, he takes care of his body, and he performs at an incredibly high level. So, you know, I think that that's really exciting to contemplate. Yeah, it's going to be very exciting to see. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure having you on. Oh, it was great to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Adam Lordson for coming on. You can read him, the San Jose Mercury News. He runs the Golden State Warriors fan blog, which is called Fast Break. It's blogs.mercurynews.com slash warriors. Also, you can follow him on Twitter. He's a great follow at GSW Fast Break. That's G-S-W-F-A-S-T-B-R-E-A-K. Also, thanks again to Ed Mazinet. You can read him at the Sports Fan Journal. He's the editor-in-chief there. He also writes for SB Nation. 
And you can follow him on Twitter at EdTheSportsFan. That's E-D-T-H-E-S-P-O-R-T-S-F-A-N. Hope to have him on soon. Love to kind of recap our Sterling conversation and have a whole new one on the Thunder. Appreciate both the guests coming on. We're going to have a really great group next week. I already have more than an episode pretty much of guests lined up and still working on getting people to do the Eliminated series. I have one lined up for next week and I'm going to be going into more. So if you have people in mind who closely follow and write about, blog, tweet, whatever you want, a certain team, you can let me know. You can email me at Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L, dot LaRue at realgm.com. That's my email. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue. That's D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. Happy for any and all suggestions to make the show better. I really enjoy them, and I've gotten some really good ones. And actually, while I had wanted him on before, part of what originally motivated me to get Adam Lordson on was that when I put that question out there one time, I got a couple of very impassioned Warriors fan responses saying, hey, you need to put him on. And I had wanted to before, but it helped give me the motivation, and it's always nice to hear that from people. So I appreciate the insight. I have some really good guests coming up, and was very pleased with how the Sterling situation resolved itself at this point. I think that I wrote at the time that it's really nice for a league that I love to really live up to that. And there are so many times in sports, especially when we're talking about commissioners who in a lot of ways serve at the pleasure of the owners, you see them side with ownership or make these decisions. And it's nice for Adam Silver to have earned himself the benefit of the doubt. Now, there definitely could be a circumstance where he loses that, and I'm very against his proposals on the age limit and also how vehemently he supports them. So who knows, maybe we'll have our little E falling out then, but it's a very good place to start, and it's also nice to establish some common ground and some common good feeling between the players and the commissioner because especially early in the relationship, that could help with what will surely be antagonistic negotiations down the line as long as Sterling is in office, as long as everybody thinks he will be. So thanks again to my guests. Thanks to you for listening and make it a great day. Greensburg, your Walmart at 2200 Greengate Center Circle has completely transformed to make shopping easier than ever. Stop by today and check out their amazing in-store upgrades with improvements to areas like produce, cosmetics, home, and more. Plus, you'll still find low prices on groceries and other items and a full-service pharmacy for all your prescription and over-the-counter medication needs. All at your newly remodeled Walmart at 2200 Greengate Center Circle in Greensburg. Save money, live better. Walmart.